Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Today is a really interesting episode. We are lucky to have Ty Ruben Ellingson come and speak to us, the art director and visual effects artist who has worked on a host of iconic films including Jurassic Park. He did the special editions on Star Wars and New Hope but has also worked with the likes of Gumilio del Toro and James Cameron which includes a host of titles like the Hellboy 1 and 2, Pacific Rim, Avatar, and much, much more. So without further ado, please enjoy today's episode of Jedi Order Podcast. So... Like for yourself, I mean, you've had a long career now that spans a few decades, but I know when you first took your ventures kind of to where you are now, you started, was it correct, like in more of a fine art background? And that that's the kind of first, your first steps into kind of progressing into different aspects of your career later on. Yeah, that's totally correct. I, uh, my father was a fine artist and university professor, so I actually, you know, saw him working on a daily basis. And as many, as many do, they, they look at their parents and say, well, you know, what is that? What is he doing? What are these things that, uh, you know, he's making happen? And because my father was so, um, uh, I think, proactive and engaged in his career, I saw it as really an exciting place and what did it all boil down to was uh, making things from scratch you know taking ideas from your mind and acting in a way that uh, they would manifest and you could show them to your friends and so forth and I think that at the very core of everything I've done in my film career um, is really uh, it kind of all goes back to I get a lot of excitement and a lot of validation out of uh, starting out in the imagination or in the mind and then bringing that forward and then having it uh, exist in the world in a way that others can, you know, appreciate it or inter- engage with those concepts. Um, and when I was young, uh, the the town that I grew up in, it didn't actually have a film school. There was no film program at the university I attended. There, there, there were some film appreciation classes and there were some you know, very, very um, rudimentary production kinds of classes. Um, but uh, I think I was right on the fence, you know, uh, at 17, 18 years old. If, if I would have had access to a film program, I might have gone that direction earlier. But because I wasn't uh, part of my uh, university, I just focused in on uh, the fine arts aspects of what I had already been engaged in. And I, and I really embraced, you know, that as important also. So I think I've always kind of dwelt, uh, you know, dwelled in an area of, you know, development, uh, artistic development that, that I, I really enjoyed and, and it felt uh, vital to me. It wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, I can't make movies, so I'll paint. It was more like, oh, I could make movies and I could paint and I could do all these other things. So 
uh, I'll just focus in on the painting right now is what it kind of boiled down to. Was was film that for you influential from the beginning before you, is that what kind of delved you into the fine art world, pursuing something creative? Was film instrumental in that or did it come afterwards? Yeah, no, it was very instrumental. In fact, I think the, the time frame that I grew up in, um, that being, you know, the latter part of the 1960s, uh, film was really viewed, I think, culturally as the new art form. You know, so I think that anybody who was interested in the arts, you know, and that's a pretty broad category, um, had to have space for cinema to, you know, to be um, to be a part of the conversation. Uh, I think even more. In fact, my memories and of course, your memories of when you're a child are always going to be kind of filtered by your age and your development. But I remember um, how important 2001 A Space Odyssey was culturally. It, it didn't feel like entertainment. It felt like um, a social experience. It felt like, a, you know, um, it felt like the arts. It felt like this is a, a, a work of art that people need to consume and experience, not just because it ex it's exciting, but because it has something important to say. And believe it or not, I think um, uh, movies like um, The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman were very topical and they sparked a lot of interest and conversation. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that for me, uh, I, I appreciated the idea that 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 film was a time-based media, much like music. It, 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 it's definitely from my earliest memory, it has a beginning, middle and end. Uh, and I think that was very exciting um, just to make that kind of realization as a young child. Uh, the fine arts, uh, at least as far as painting goes or sculpture, it's, it, it's stationary. It, it exists in time in that it is, you, you know, go to it and you experience it and then you move on. Uh, but it is itself is not it's not meant to necessarily uh, have a beginning, middle and end. It's more of a, a direct interpretation. So um, those are the ideas I'm sure that I, uh, you know, came to uh, later on. But when I was a child, I was very excited by films. Um, I, I drew a lot of things that I saw in movies, um, you know, like I, I could go back and forth pretty seamlessly from uh, you know, this form of art to this form of art. And, um, uh, you know, again, I think, I think that I was content in doing the types of artistic uh, investigations that were available to me. And I, I don't remember frustration at all. I remember just thinking, well, I wish I could do this, but, I, you know, I'm going to have to do that later. And so I'll focus in on this. And I, I think that that's still how I sort of feel, you know. Well, it's quite interesting because I guess you're, even when you were younger, your approach, you saying that there wasn't a film school near where you were, where you grew up. Um, but is that so could you pursue your kind of interests when you went like through college and university? Was art something that's when it became something a bit more serious to you, even if it or, or it already was serious to you? But did you take more of a focus academically then when it got? To yeah. That? I think because, again, like I had the very good fortune of having a, a very serious artist uh, father. 
And so the idea of the value of arts in a community were that was a given. So I believe that if you had um, if you had questions about the nature of reality, if you had questions about what is what are the you know what's the story of um, of humanity, like wh what is it that that we're all doing on this crazy planet? It was natural to, in some cases, people would have a religious vantage point that they would go to with those questions. Another person might have some kind of nature mysticism where they commune with nature to find, you know, answers. But then there was a lot of, you know, people that, that would look to music or look to the arts, look to, you know, various kinds of human expression. And then that would help them interpret reality. Uh, uh, and I think that that seemed natural to me. It seemed to me that there was the day-to-day -day activities of what it meant to, um, you know, service and service a life existence. Like you have to get up and eat and have a job and, you know, those kinds of things. But if you really were, if you're really like saying, wow, I'm really inspired by, you know, what, by, by this, this moment I find myself in, like, what could I, what, what could I do to find out more is it would be natural to like, you know, look to the arts and say, well, you know, here's this fantastic music or, you know, here are these great films or these books or, you know, this artwork. And it would challenge you in a way that would, I guess, assist you in developing and growing and becoming a, a new person, right? Like a different type of person. So I think I'd made all those, um, those kind of connections while I was still in high school. So by the time I went to university, I was kind of solely focused on developing as an artist uh, and again like I didn't it didn't ever concern me that I didn't have access to certain kinds of um, you know pathways I just focused on the things I did have access to and of course you know my my parents for my college I mean for my high school graduation did give me a super 8 camera um, so I did shoot super 8 films but it was always uh, on my own so uh, you know, I, I have some of those online, you know, like they're very much what you'd expect. I was playing around with, uh, you know, narratives that were sequential and I was learning about editing, but it was really, I, I felt like it was, um, I, I felt like it was more about, um, exploration than understanding an actual process, you know, like it was. I was thinking of like it, as a bad analogy. I was just experimenting with the instruments. I was not really playing any music, you know. Like that's how I saw it. But I look at it now and I think, well, maybe I was, you know, actually getting some melodies started because there were, you know, there were themes and there's story pieces. You can describe what happens to another person. So, um, yeah, I think I took myself. I mean, we're going to talk about a longer career, but. Yeah, somewhere around the age of 14 to 15, like right after junior high school, I started to take my interest in the fine arts and my interest in, um, uh, I guess, human development or artistic development really serious. And I, I was never, after that point, I, I was just always on that path. And I didn't let anybody dissuade me. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you say as well about um, you being gifted a Super 8 camera and the little projects and stuff you started to try and create from that. I feel that's very much something that needs to be communi communicated more in the art side of things because I feel a lot of people get a bit standoffish because they don't understand all the technology sides sometimes, especially when it comes to art and cinema. And they're like, well, I there's so much to learn, but it 
a lot of it is done by doing and it's done by just going out there and don't have to focus on producing such you know an award-winning short or something from the get-go you just kind of go out there and see how these elements react with each other and kind of play so it's it's always kind of inspiring to hear people who would just kind of go out there with no real objective of i'm going to create this project but i'm just going to experience it and see where it kind of takes me yeah that's exactly right and when i'm i teach at university now myself um and what what you're talking about is what i refer to as experiential learning um that you you could read a book about the theories um you can plan in your mind like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna make a movie about uh, a canoe and i'm gonna like people are gonna arrive at the beach they're gonna get in a canoe and they're gonna have a basket and they're gonna go out and that'll be my sequence but until you actually whether you use your iphone or you use a, a you know you use a consumer camera or you get your hands on a real camera we like the, a more sophisticated camera until you're actually down there staging it and giving instruction and saying, okay, well, let's try it where you come in. And then you, you're not actually, you're not actually uh, building those um, skills that, that, that exist in the methodology, like the, 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 the required physicality of those um, processes are, are always going to be um, conceptual until you're doing it. And so often I do tell uh, students, um, look, you know, let's have a little bit of a, of a, a separation of tasks, you know, think of it as uh, skill development or experiential learning on one end and then uh, conceptual or interior learning on the other end, you know, uh, interior methodologies. And then over time, like go back and forth and, and work across that border and then you'll find ways in which new things will result that you can't conceptually um, imagine because they're too um, they're 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 too uh, far out of your field of view to to just sit and imagine them. You have to actually experience them. So there's a kind of a dance or a pendulum swing that that I think is required for you know students to really become well-rounded as uh, creatives. They have to kind of uh, and then as their skills develop, of course, they can do it simultaneously, you know, so like a, a great performer, like a guitarist, like Prince, you know, could create new ideas, new sonic experiences, new sonic ideas while he's develop the, developing them and playing them simultaneously because his skills were so advanced. And that's where we all want to get to where, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, resonance or tuning between the interior and external universe, and they they function uh, more potently together. Um, but that that is that's kind of the goal of the arts is to bring uh, bring us to that place, you know. And and for you especially, I mean, your career starts off in the film industry at ILM, which is a place kind of renowned for creating new ways of thinking when it comes to film, creating film and effects and art and visual art in that way. How did you, because as you said, you know, I mean, California and LA probably seemed like a long way away uh, from where you grew up. So how did the ILM come about and that opportunity come about for you to take? Well, there's kind of like, it kind of is, it's, it's sort of two stories. Um, there's the, there's the preparedness story. Like how did I prepare? And I think I prepared by not knowing what it would be like. So I thought, well, 
in my mind, I imagined well, what kind of goes on at ILM. And I watched all the documentaries that were available on, you know, the making of Star Wars. And, you know, I, when I got out of college, VHS machines were relatively new. And I, you know, I, I took out a loan from a bank to get my first, you know, um, video cassette player. And I would watch anything on the making of movies that, you know, I could get my hands on. And I think I saw patterns, you know, like there were people who came up with ideas and they drew and there were people that like built models and there were people that did, you know, the camera work. And I, and I tried to really drill, drill down and understand those. So on the one side, I was sort of, uh, preparing myself, uh, with with no real experience so it was like i was imagining it but then i was doing real planning so it'd be like i was thinking about it with my students i say it's like you're going to a new continent and you can through books but you can't actually until you pack your stuff so it's kind of like you bring a raincoat and a you know you, you make some assessments so i think that ultimately was where my success um lie uh it it, it was because i think in many ways i over prepared um, in certain areas. <clears throat> so there was that piece, but then there was also the, just how did I physically, um, you know, make connections to the opportunity in a more physical realm. And, uh, that is one of the things that I always bring up in the classroom with my students is it was, um, my intention to succeed. I, I really believed that I was going to find a way to work in Hollywood. I really uh, believed it with like total conviction that um, this was something within my um, grasp and that I was going to accomplish it. So much like I think most athletes who, who you know really aspire towards the Olympics or something, they're not dissuaded by the difficulties. So, you know, somebody says, "Well, you're not." you know, it's really going to be hard to get in the Olympics. They, they're not thinking like that. They're thinking like, I'm on the pedestal, I'm winning the award. I'm, you know, here's my gold. I've done the work, you know? And I think that kind of, um, creating what I call like a, a, a morphic bridge or a morphogenetic field that leads to the future by, by doing that effectively daily with conviction, it creates a gravity of sorts that lies in the future and it starts to pull you towards it. So your success um, grows from uh, uh, being drawn into the future towards this thing that exists in hyperspace out there, as opposed to every day just having to push, 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 push. Um, the So that was happening on a kind of, I guess, mystic or metaphysical level. But then the day-to-day -day was... Um, this is pre-internet. Uh, I would I would call people on the phone, like, and I had heard somebody on NPR who had written a book, I think, called something like, you know, the power of asking. Uh, and I remember they said they were talking about this idea that I'd never heard of before. It was called networking, and I was like, networking. Wow, that what does that mean? And it was basically all they said in this national public radio interview was. If you want to do something, call up every single person you know, ask them if they know anyone who does that thing. If they say no, then say, is there anybody that you might be able to put me in contact with who might know something about this thing? And by doing that, you'll just keep, you know, building this network, which now we just take that for granted. I mean, all my students talk about networking and they all understand social media, but back in the 1980s, um, it was really hard. And so I started doing that. And eventually I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. 
and I went to a party by that was uh, I was invited to through a friend, so I didn't know the host. Uh, and I just said, wow, thanks for this party. Do you know anybody that works in the movie business? And they said, no, but you see that guy over by the pool there? Like, I think they know somebody that does something in the movies. And sure enough, I introduced myself and they knew some people that worked on, you know, television, local television. And so I, I said, could I, would you introduce me? And I literally just kept doing that over and over <laughs> until eventually I, I found a contact to Industrial Light and Magic through, at that time, a gentleman named Warren Franklin, who was the, uh, he was the chief operational officer of Industrial Light and Magic. And just for that window of time, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he was already uh, in the process of leaving the company when I arrived there, but I, I was able to get a portfolio to them and then they showed it to somebody in the model shop. And then I was talking with them on the phone and I said, I'm, you know, I, can I have an interview? And they, they, they were really reluctant. Uh, they were like, well, we're not really hiring anybody. And I said, well, can, if I, sh if I come there, will you see me? And they're like, okay. So then I just took, it's the same story. I mean, I just took my credit card and I flew out there to California and I rented a car and I drove over there and I had a meeting and I, uh, they had already seen my portfolio. And then I just, I said, well, I've, I really have to work here, you know, and uh, they were like, well, we don't really work like that. You know, we don't, we don't really hire people like, as like, we don't just hire people. They usually come when there's a project or something. I said, well, if I'm, if I moved here, when would I be able to get an opportunity? And they were sort of like, well, you know, uh, non-committal. And I said, well, I'm moving. I'll just move here. So <laughs> then I just moved there. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 the best <laughs> and then the timing was right you know. <laughs> well I mean, you gotta you gotta do it man you do you very much do and i'm a big believer um having had the opportunity and being fortunate enough to work in the entertainment industry myself it's you have to ask the question because you don't know what the answer is going to be. And I feel very much in a lot of situations, if you don't ask, even if there isn't an opportunity there, if there was, it's just going to pass you by and you're not going to be kind of none the wiser, which is a shame for a lot of people because I feel there's a lot of people that might miss that opportunity. But yeah, it's it's asking, it's making yourself available, especially if you're passionate and you re and that is what you want to do then you just have to communicate that in some way to the people you're hoping to work for. Yeah. In fact, it, it, what you're talking about in, with passion is sometimes when I talk to students, they, they will say, well, you know, like I feel like I am passionate about it. And I'll say, well, you know, maybe it's just a slight turn of the lens. And I said, when you're starting out, there are people with projects who have needs um, and when they're looking across the landscape of, of, you know, personalities, you know, talents, skills, tools, whatever it is, they're looking for solutions to their problems. So when you're starting out, think of yourself as the solution. I am the solution to a creative problem that I've yet to encounter. And just by turning it a little bit and saying, oh, because then people start to think, that's a little more approachable. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a little more, uh, it's a little more foundational to say, oh, I see. Yes. Like my portfolio is a demonstration of how I can, uh, 
assist others in manifesting solutions for their artistic and creative problems. Um, it's a little bit more approachable than, you know, I'm going to be the most um, extraordinary practitioner of some kind of skill because that can kind of be a, a, like isolated or, you know, you can kind of see yourself as this uh, kind of waiting for some validation floating around, you know, in this kind of like creative state, just, you know, waiting for somebody to invite you. But if you think, no, no, I have things to offer of value. I'm a, I am the solution to your artistic needs. And then it, then it becomes much more uh, grounded. And then I think it helps students um, you know, effectively maneuver into their career. Now, later you may have your own like original ideas that you want to express. You know, you want to do a graphic novel or make a game or a movie or whatever. And those are, you know, there are some people that granted they have such a clear vision of what it is that they're setting out to accomplish that they can kind of go straight at that. Um, but many, many students uh, that I encounter who are part of the university are much more in a developmental stage of their career. And they, they're actually looking to see how they fit into the larger landscape, which is different than if you're the trailblazer. You know, if you're the George Lucas or Steven Spielberg or even Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, you've, you've, you've got the vision, you've got the mission, you're on the, that, that. Those are extraordinary individuals. And I, I would love to, you know, aspire to be like them, but they're already in a kind of different um, altitude or frequency, you know. But once again, with those individuals, uh, as we all know, it's a massive collaborative process in order yes. for their vision to become real. And uh, because I know for you, I know you did a few different jobs at Ireland when you first started there, work, working on such things as motion rides mm -hmm. uh, and various things before you jumped on a big project. But I feel was was Jurassic Park the first major fil feature film project that you worked on whilst at Ireland? Yes, it was. I I think that my, I I think that I worked on a a movie that had um, Wesley Snipes in it. Rising Sun, I think, is the name of it, and that was actually the first film that I was slated to get a film credit on. But ILM was doing just a very minimal amount of work. It was just some, you know, very. Um, um, like actually almost invisible visual effects. It was like changing a clock. It was like some weird thing. So I had already kind of, you know, knew the structure of how work got done. And then you mentioned the Space Race uh, Showscan Ride film. That was actually the project that really, because it was an accelerated project that had a lot of um, technical uh, things attached to it, that really in a short period of like one year, it kind of, uh, provided me an opportunity to really understand the larger um, construct of what industrial light and magic was. Because it's, it's a very complex ecosystem, at least it, it still is today. But at that time, when you were looking at some, such a diverse uh, pool of talent, so everything from somebody who's building a set with, you know, hammer, screws, nails, wood, uh, all the way through to like optical compositing, you you can look at those two things and go, wow, how do these how do these two things even relate to each other? You know, they're so different, but but there's a pathway that would allow for them to work together. Like so, maybe the the set has a specific design so that when they shoot actors, they can you know use uh, they can create 
uh, holdout areas that later on something will be composited into. And so you can see that the the need of the of the director, the need of the film is um, is is what's driving all this complex decision making and then all this finesse and um, and I think um, uh, like again, sort of a, a of an interesting um, collaborative dance. Uh, so working on the ride film, uh, Space Race, it, it really gave me a, f a clear um, overview of how the systems operated in the various departments. And, and then I started to um, uh, actually, it's so funny, I, I really was at a party. We used to have these uh, monthly um, like uh, beer parties, like uh, we, we would show all the visual effects that were in process on the various films in the, one of the theaters. And then the company would get chips and salsa and beer. And we would do that like once a month. And I, I ended up meeting um, Mark DePay and uh, Steve Williams, who were, had just finished their work on The Abyss and, uh, you know, were, were kind of the, the movers and shakers in the, in the world of CGI and uh, doing the computer graphics. And so I actually started learning about the computer graphics end of the spectrum um, from a social personal relationship because everything I had worked on with Space Race was done in the exact same methodology as the original Star Wars, A New Hope. It was done with um, motion control models, optical compositing. It had no digital elements. Uh, but I was seeing the, the work coming out of the CGI department and I was, you know, of course it was mind blowing. And so then I was very curious. And so once I started to uh, understand how the CGI universe kind of mirrored the, uh, the more traditional effects work that ILM was doing, I kind of created this, um, bridge of understanding. And then at that time, Jurassic was just getting rolling and I had worked with Dennis Muren and Dennis brought me in. And so it, it was one of those kind of, now it looks very, um, linear, you know, it looks like I arrived, I did this, then I did this other, but it was much more like organic and, uh, it was more developmental. And then if you could keep up with the developmental aspects of what was going on, you could really participate. You could really bring some value again, like, uh, you could bring value to the process. And, um, that's kind of how it all happened for me is once I got, uh, invited to the party, as it were, to work on Jurassic, I kept finding new ways to have relevancy. And that's what, um, I think really, you know, kept me, um, as part of that core team, kept me engaged and relevant to the larger project. Because Jurassic especially was, uh, I mean, it was a very interesting, a very ambitious project because there was a lot of, um, from seeing the documentaries and the behind the scenes, there was a lot of advancements or new things that were happening in a digital sense when creating that film. I mean, what was the experience like being, not only being on a project of that size, but then being on a project where they were not making up things as they go along, but they were exploring new avenues that changed uh, dramatically from obviously at the beginning start of creating the film and throughout to kind of create this new digital world, especially obviously with a lot of the dinosaur effects. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's pretty weird uh, to, you know, like, 
I guess I, I guess it, it's a little bit strange to, to have to like say it out loud, but it, people often will say it, it was Renaissance, right? Like I'll say, oh, it was, it was like a Renaissance experience, um, and and that's the only word that like that has ever really made it make sense to me. It it felt so fundamentally like exciting and and fresh and dynamic and exhilarating and exciting and and maybe more than anything surprising it it felt like you really were in territory that was completely uncharted and and you would see the results of efforts and we would you know have film outs where they would take a particular shot that was at a specific you know kind of state of being worked on and you would project it and then you'd be in this auditorium you know there'd be no sound or anything just the projector in the back and then you would look at this and then you would say well what the hell am i looking at like you 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 were surprised in a in a way that made you kind of giddy like you just you just couldn't you know, you you couldn't even having even knowing exactly what you were looking at. You it was like the sum was greater than the parts, and you had this feeling of euphoria that was like, "Holy shit, what are we doing here? This is this is insane." You know, this is really. But then it lasted that, that feeling uh, of the extraordinary nature of what was happening was it would propel you forward. It would, it would validate things and it would excite you. And then you were ready to go off and continue to do the hard work and continue to engage in the uh, innovation and process and so forth. So um, it, it, it didn't feel like I had the same feeling uh, once again on Avatar. Um, but on Avatar, it felt it felt more like you were accelerating uh, 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 a sports car that had already been built. So like, whereas Jurassic would be like, we're building a, a new kind of sports car from scratch. Uh, and that's how it kind of felt. Avatar was more like, we have this sports car we've been driving for a while, but now we're going to attach wings onto it and we're going to give it some better engines and then we're going to go to the moon in it. So it had a legacy component that I, you could feel as like picking up and like a baton and running, but, but I think in a weird way, like running further than it actually was to go from not having the car to the car. So, but, but building the first, you know, building Avatar, being part of that team, seeing it in real time was, um, it, it really, f it, it was, again, like, I, I like it, I like analogies sometimes that are more mystic. It, it, it was part of a collective hallucination that had a real resonance to it. So you really, you really walked around in a sense of being in harmony with the endeavor and the people, the team. Jurassic was a small team, like less than 50 people. And at any given time, you almost, you know, you could almost put everybody in a room for a meeting. And then everybody was engaged. These were really, really bright, talented individuals. And I remember just being in that space of this, you know, basically a kind of a warehouse office space where the computer graphics, uh, you know, team was. And there was already always somebody working. You know, you could go in there at two in the morning and there would be people watching, you know, the film outs or watching the, you know, watching shots that were being processed. And there were people sleeping on couches and, and there was a kind of collective communal 
understanding that we were doing important work. And, uh, and so there was that also, that communal piece that was really um, exciting and, and uh, extraordinary. And then, and then when, you, when it was done, it, it just felt like, yeah, like you, you could sense the shift. And, uh, and then everybody was, I think it's very difficult for, especially my students mostly today, you know, they were all, they were all, you know, born after 9-11. They, they will, I'll ask them about certain films that were really important to me and they'll often not know them, you know, like they may not know Little Big Man or they may not know, you know, uh, The Conversation, you know, by Francis Coppola, but they've all seen Jurassic Park. And um, I think that, the thing I always try to express to them is when it came out in the theater, no one understood it. Like, like no one understood what they were seeing. And I, I remember going to my hometown and just seeing, you know, people that I'd grown up with and they would, they would stop me and they would say like, what, what did I see? They had no ability to um, tease apart what they saw on the screen because no one knew what computer graphics were. I mean, they just didn't understand it. So it was like magic, you know, it was like something that they, but they knew it was something. And then you try to explain to them even something like how geometry is generated in a computer and how you calculate light and shadow and it, people just, you know, just, whereas now I think we're all very, um, you know, we're very familiar with it. So it, it, it doesn't, it, I think Jurassic now functions less as a landmark, uh, uh, landmark, um, computer graphics picture and more just a great story with really compelling visuals and it doesn't really matter we most most of my students don't know what stan winston's you know t-rex or what's what's cgi like they they can pick out a few shots here and there but they just love the movie i mean the movie is still has that appeal that's um universal well yeah very much so and as you were saying it's it was hard for i guess people to comprehend watching it then because the the real obviously models and the animatronics that were used in Jurassic Park paired with the visual effects you kind of you can easily see the confusion in people trying to wrap their head around like a digital dinosaur so to speak on screen to one of the animatronics because everything was looking on the same level so for them to understand how that was even working in that um scene is uh for the common person they must have been like i mean it's just all looks magical to a certain extent yeah i mean it is uh, uh, to me it all it all orbits the the main road sequence where the rex is introduced and spielberg's directing of that sequence with the famous you know glass of water with the ripples and then you know the appearance of the rex in the outside of the fence and then it's coming through the fence breaking the rules it's the whole movie you know in in that sequence you know from nature to the world of humans by means of being powerful enough to break out of the uh barrier and then seeing the humans as uh, tasty morsels and ob you know objects to be digested, and uh, and and then the 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 reality, although it's cinematically quite brilliant, to just use the jeep as this um, complex you know uh, shell that protects the kids, but you get a close up view of the you know the nature of a, a predatory animal, and 
I think that, that, that the reality of that sequence, the fact that it's in rain, the fact that it includes lightning and atmospheric effects, the fact that, that it's just constructed brilliantly, um, and, and also the, the use of the animatronics, the Winston um, animatronics, really uh, set the tone for how they shot the sequence. So it's shot in a very grounded way. There's not any flying cameras or extreme camera moves. It's really just very nuts and bolts, um, you know, filmmaking. And I think that adds a lot to the realism. It feels like, it feels like you shot it with an animal, you know, it has that feeling about it. So I think that once you buy that sequence, which most everybody does, the rest of the movie, it, it, it's, it delivers, um, you know, because it's, you've already, your, your disbelief or your, suspension of um you know disbelief has been completely uh, vanquished and you're in for the ride and so everything moving forward is pure narrative and you don't you don't focus as much on how you focus on the vibes you know the feeling of it yeah yeah completely very much so i mean you've been extremely lucky to work on a host of different projects that have all um had a lot of digital advancements and art advancements when it comes to filmmaking and what's seen on screen and lo you you obviously after jurassic park you did a few more film projects before kind of coming on board to work on the special editions of star wars i mean when it came to because i know you worked on stuff like casper and flintstones which followed Jurassic Park um, but working with a film that had already been around and been iconic to so many people for so many years where did the initial discussions I mean had you worked with Lucas on anything prior to that or was this kind of the first thing that you two are collaborating on and how did that kind of begin when I first arrived at um, Lucasfilm uh, 1988 the end of it 1988 uh, early eight, 1989, there was a, a project that George was developing uh, that was called the, the Luminaire. It was an actual, uh, what we refer to as location-based entertainment project. It was a real building, uh, a real location that was uh, going to be built and operated in Houston, Texas. And um, it, without getting into the details, that's a little bit how my networking that we talked about in the beginning g led to Lucasfilm was because there were some people from Lucasfilm working in Texas. Um, and uh, the project was very much ahead of its time. It, it really was um, uh, like a, a, a th the only way I could describe it quickly would be like a themed um, amusement park slash uh shopping mall i mean it had shopping components restaurant components high-end theater components and kind of spectacle it had a lot of like uh interesting activities all in an interior space all in like a shopping space and it it was really a cool project it was it was it, would, it, would, it was really ahead of its time but eventually it, it it couldn't, um, it, it, the pieces didn't come together. And so it was kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say that it was abandoned in a sense like, oh, that's not going to work. It was more or less just something that didn't come together. And I think George moved on. I only bring that up because that project I was involved with as one of the designers and because it was a project that George had envisioned, 
um, when I first arrived, I actually had many meetings with George. Like over the course of probably 10 months, I, I was in meetings with him um, maybe, you know, at least a dozen times, if not more. And because I was new to the company, I kind of, uh, and I'd watched the documentaries, uh, you know, on the making of the Star Wars films and so forth. I kind of thought that that was normal. I kind of felt like, you know, George probably just is around and you're working and then, oh, there he is, you know. It wasn't until later I realized that he actually, you know, wasn't part of the day-to-day operation of Industrial Light and Magic by any means. Um, and he, in fact, was actually on another, a whole nother, you know, he, he was up at Skywalker Ranch. He had his own office. He was doing his own stuff. And so um, what was great about that as short-lived as the project was, is that I think I actually was able to build a, a relationship with George where he he knew who I was. Um, you know, like I would, you know, we would have a, a Christmas party or something, and I, I, because I had been in those meetings, you know, I felt very comfortable going over and saying like, hey, George, thanks so for having this great party, you know, whereas a lot of people would be kind of, you know, maybe not comfortable approaching him and so forth. And I was a huge fan, of course, of the Star Wars pictures and American Graffiti, and I knew exactly who he was. Um, so I, I think in a weird way, I kind of passed a certain, like, um, professional test because, you know, I was in meetings and we were getting work done and uh, it was, it was uh, you know, it was copacetic. It worked well. There wasn't any um, unusual or, uh, concerning aspects to how, um, you know, uh, I engaged with him or, you know, any of those kinds of things. So, so when he decided to, um, he had seen Jurassic Park, um, and he was very in, you know, inspired by the, the progress that had been made in the world of computer graphics. And he had decided to uh, go back to um, the original Star Wars uh, from 1977, The New Hope, and to, you know, hopefully, um, you know, uh, retool it or, or uh, you know, at least uh, enhance it in some way. And I know that the first call that uh, had come in was to Dennis Muren. And I had worked with Dennis on both, uh, you know, by that time on the Space Race Ride film. Dennis was very involved with uh, the um, Jurassic team and then, of course, uh, Casper. And so what I understand was that George had said, I want to investigate this, um, but I don't want it to turn into a big deal. Like, I don't want it to become a, a big production. I just want to look at what could be done with a small team, with a limited budget, you know, maybe to between shows while ILM is up and running normal, just like I want to do it on the, you know, just on the low, low down, just the thing. So then uh, Dennis, I remember, called me and said, hey, you know, swing by my office. I want to talk to you about something. And then he said, uh, you know, George wants to do this rework of the star wars picture you know or, or you know he wants to do a special edition kind of a deal you know i'd like you to be involved and and i you know and I, I was like yeah yeah that'd be great and i was really excited but i was also you know being a professional i was like yeah that totally caught me in you know but inside of course you know i was <laughs> kind of going crazy but though so then the very first meeting on the project was it was straightforward because again like 
um, George knew exactly who I was. It was, I knew, uh, you know, I was like, Hey, good to see you again. You know, like this is exciting. And it was very small. It only, it was only like, uh, five people at that first meeting. Um, and then what George did was describe, uh, the shots that he had envisioned. Um, and most of them in that first couple of preliminary meetings were really, uh, enhancements to, uh, the 1977 release. There wasn't the, some of the things that, you know, were done later, um, uh, were not discussed in that early meeting. Uh, uh, and that would be, of course, like, um, you know, having Greedo shoot first, uh, was never part of the preliminary discussion. Um, and adding the Jawas, uh, onto the back of the Ronto was something that came later, but, um, but everything made a lot of sense and he really referenced uh, very specific things that he had known about and wanted to do initially uh, in the first film, but that just didn't have time or budget for. And so the list then was on a piece of paper. And then I went about uh, doing the first pass storyboards on everything to just so we had talking, uh, you know, so we had an infrastructure. Um, and uh, that, that, you know, happened over a few weeks and then it slowly moved from that into like looking at how would these things be created. And, and then it took a really long time. Um, uh, the, the two shots I mentioned, but both the Greedo and shooting and, um, the Jawas on the Ronto, there were, I was gone by that time. So I, I passed the baton as a VFX art director to Mark Moore, uh, at some point who then was the head of ILM's art department and Mark kind of shepherded it through, um, from basically I left there in 95 and I think it came out in the theaters in 97, maybe. So he, he shepherded it through for an additional, you know, almost two years. And I was on it like a year. Well, there in, in that early year, especially uh, working on such a project that is there, was there any particular, scenes that you found extremely interesting to be going back into to whether it's adding additions or making some digital enhance enhancements for yourself professionally was there was there anything that kind of stood out to you is that this is like a really interesting thing to kind of get involved with well it was from a personal perspective it was mind-boggling I mean, I had really gone to school on, you know, Joe, Joe Johnston and Neela Rodas and, and Ralph McQuarrie. I mean, these were my big, um, you know, uh, like icons, you know, uh, they, these were people that had profoundly affected my development as a, as an artist designer and as a human being, you know, I really thought that, you know, Joe's design work for the Star Wars pictures were, was, you know, just off the charts, extraordinary. Um, you know, so the idea that I was entering into that, um, legacy in a, in a way that was real, was like having a time machine. Like I was going back to 1977 in the room with the director, not, not, not only revisiting it, like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go back and revisit this film, but literally with the director on the original film, on the film that affected me so profoundly. And I, I remember using all of my, um, 
my best interior practices to not be a fan, you know, not to go, Oh shit. You know? Yeah. 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 You know, like I, I didn't want to be that guy. So he was like, well, there'll be a floating droid here. And I was like, okay, make a note droid floating. And in my inside, I was like, yeah. Um, so I think it was all pretty heady in that regard. Um, I think what they, um, about it from like a, you know, cinematic, uh, kind of, you know, um, vantage point was that I was surprised at how, um, specific most everything he was talking about in those first meetings was and how much it really, in my mind, reflected the care that he put into the first picture. One of the shots was, uh, he wanted to expand uh, an establishing shot of um, the Jawas transport by the shot already existed. It's a shot of the treads with the droids. And, you know, I think uh, Luke and, and I don't, I, I'd have to go back and there's really no exactly. Cause we did a couple of those, but he really wanted, he always felt like he said in the meeting, he's like, you know, everyone knows that the treads are a set piece. And everyone knows that you can't go beyond a certain point because you're going to run out of set. Um, and that bugged him, you know. So he wanted this a couple of shots where you're actually wider and that you get to see the more of the vehicle. Um, and in so doing, changing the cadence of that sequence visually because you're showing like, oh, don't don't think this is just a set piece. There's actually a gigantic vehicle here. And I remember having to go back to the original prints. We we actually had a, a print that we would that I would ask the editorial staff would put it up on the Moviola, and that's a a, a a device for viewing 35 millimeter footage. And and I actually made tracings uh, on animation cells of those shots. And then I would I brought those to the next meeting, and I said, okay, how much larger? Like this much bigger? And then George would like, yeah, like this big. You know, we would. We, you often refer to those as fields. So it'd be like, you know, two additional fields on the top, and two additional fields, and then and then I would, you know, like make notes, and then I would add in in a in a in a drawing, you know, like here's what it would look like, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, that's it. So I mean, it was very specific to set, you know, to to the visual storytelling enhanced in a way that he would have done it originally. Cause that would have been a matte painting back in the beginning, you know, like it would have been one more matte painting that he couldn't, um, you know, he couldn't manage. Uh, same with the, same with the Java, the hut scene. Um, when we met the first time, I have a little bit of that, uh, some sketches and drawings on uh, Twitter, or Facebook or something that we, there was a short period of time where the uh, the design of, of of Jabba that appeared in Return of the Jedi there was a concern that it, it couldn't move around um, and do a performance that was necessary for that sequence to work because the sequence had been shot originally with an actor in a in a fur vest it was going to be replaced with a, a tippet variety um you know stop motion character and so there was some conversation about like well maybe i remember i i said well maybe it could have a floating throne you know like a hover throne and i did some sketches of it and i don't think george ever bought that i think i think he thought that was too you know far out or you know or if he did it probably was 
maybe it didn't feel right in that universe somehow. Um, although later, you know, in uh, I think it's in is it in Empire when the 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 they float the carbonite uh, Han Solo into the Slave One ship, you know, and that was floating. But but that, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like the point was is that, and then there was concern like, could we block it? Um, could we make the scene work? And and actually. It was partially that they were able to um, digitally remove Harrison Ford from the background plate and reposition him, which hadn't been done either by that time. Um, although there were some things done in uh, Jurassic where they did that face replacement. So there was some 2D techniques that were, you know, accessible to use. So so anyway, I guess the point I would make that, that getting back to your question is is it was all exciting. I found it all to be um understandable and logical and again like uh, so then i left uh you know mid-production to go work with uh, guillermo uh and when my friend mark moore called me one time and said hey you know george is going to go back and have greedo shoot first in the cantina scene i i literally thought it was like a joke i i, I mean i was like i remember saying like oh yeah 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 sure you know like i thought it was a Prank. Um, but that moment in time, you know, like Stephen had removed the the, the guns from ET um, digitally, uh, and there was a weird kind of. Uh, I think both men, like Stephen and George, had were fathers, and they suddenly had kids, and they were like, you know, do I? Is this a good moral message to send? You know that that you know that Han Solo would shoot somebody, and you know, regardless of whether they're like a green alien guy or not, you know. Whereas when I was young, and I'm still look, I'm I've I've lived a pretty long life now with a lot of um, you know encounters with all types of people, and I really don't think that that Greedo getting shot under the table was that disturbing, you know, to the average film goer. Uh, but it did, you know, it was something that George, um, you know, uh, had concerns about. So I, you know, I can't fault him for that, but I didn't actually work on that stuff. I think I, I liked anytime we could add droids. I was all for that. You know, anytime there was anything like, yeah, a better Mos Eisley and yeah, I'm all into that, you know, you want some more spaceships, more better. I mean, I, I, I really did, but I felt like it, it, from my two cents, like I, I really felt like what, when I was sitting in those meetings in the beginning with George, it was like he was John Ford and we were working on the searchers and he was asking about these very specific cinematic things that made really uh, complete logical narrative sense to me. Um, um, you know, I don't know later on some of the decisions, you know, maybe people would take issue with or quarrel with or have concerns, you know, like I, that's not for me to say, but I know my experience was, um, I felt like it was a high altitude uh, um, place to find myself and really relished it, you know. I mean, and especially when you talk about there as well, I mean, you left halfway through production, but I mean, you left halfway through production to work with one of another great storytelling director in Guillermo del Toro. I mean, you were very fortunate, I feel, because you and del Toro, even though his career in TV and uh, writing started a bit earlier but your kind of feature film careers kind of intertwined because you were very uh, a big part of his first kind of american feature film 
experience you got to obviously work on a lot of other projects with him and have done throughout his career but that must have been an interesting creative time for both yourself and Guillermo as well kind of finding the footing there and in his first experience and you helping bringing what he wanted his first American feature to look like yeah I the thing for me about it which is so interesting is that um I I I I really loved the visual effects work a lot. Um, I really did uh, appreciate every minute that I spent as a part of Industrial Light and Magic. But I would say somewhere around 1994, um, while Casper was up and running, um, uh, my my father unexpectedly uh, passed away, and and I I remember very specifically that. Um, as that's that's the kind of tragedy that everyone will encounter and everybody will find their way through. But for me, it it really um, uh, made me think about what was the next big page, you know, in my life. And because of the successes that I'd had at ILM and because of the success that I had had with Jurassic Park, I was, I think, free to consider the future in a much more um like uh, from a scaffolding that was well built because like you know there was only a, like i said earlier like there was only like 40 people that really worked on or 50 people that worked on the digital effects for jurassic so to be one of those people was you know really really a small group like it was a really small club and i could literally uh, i literally could go to a university and call up the art department and say hey my name's ty ellingson and i'm in town uh, i worked on jurassic park would you have an interest if in me talking to your students and then they would say yeah you know like come right in you know like so it had a certain cachet that was um really uh you know, um, off the charts. Um, and so I think, um, while I was working on Casper, that was a very different experience. It was very, very large film, you know, had like the crew, we crewed up really huge. I think that we had well hundred people that were working on it very quickly. And I remember feeling more as though I was becoming, uh, and I don't mean this in too negative way, but I was becoming more of a cog in a machine because as things scale up, as things get larger, everybody is, is taking care of like a smaller component and there's more, uh, structure and organization and scheduling and all these things that have to occur in order for those larger projects to be successful. And I think that I, in a weird way, working on the special edition of Star Wars and, and, and meeting with George at that same exact time period and looking at the, all the Star Wars Macquarie artwork and Nilo and, 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 and all the stuff that was being, you know, that was there, I thought, you know, I really got into this field as much to become a designer as it was to participate in the creation of visual effects. I mean, visual effects was a doorway but I had always seen myself as having another role, which was to uh, be a designer at behest of the director to help tell the larger story and not be as attached to the visual effects piece. So I actually had started thinking a great deal about that and kind of getting back full circle to this idea of 
creating a future vision for yourself, kind of a, a morphic bridge to the future, I actually had started thinking, well, I will need to leave ILM. And at that time, no one had left. I mean, no one left the ILM art department. We were at the top of our chart. You know, like ILM was the premier effects house in the world. So even to just consider it seemed kind of crazy. But I, I remember, you know, like, starting to build up a portfolio of personal work and starting to think about it, maybe, you know, taking more advantage of, uh, of opportunities to have a voice and, and build up my kind of, uh, skills as a, a, a player in the realm of, uh, of, you know, a problem solver, like a visual problem solver. And it was actually Matthew Robbins who was the co-writer of mimic, and who directed Dragon Slayer. And actually at the end of Close Encounter of the Third Kind, when these airmen come out of the mothership who are supposedly these, this uh, group of airmen that were lost in the Bermuda Triangle, like Matthew Robbins is one of those, one of those actors. And uh, I got to know Matthew while I was working on some commercials with him in the beginning of my career at ILM. And he always uh, had, has always been a mentor of mine and, and, I got a phone call from him um, and he just very frankly said, Ty, it's Matthew. Um, I've met a young director, Guillermo del Toro. I'm, you're going to work with him. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, this is the call. You know, this is the call. So I said, great, I'm ready. And I just tell him I'm ready. And so weirdly enough, like within a month, he came to ILM and screened Kronos and we had a side meeting, talked about a few projects. It felt like I knew him already. I mean, I remember just sensing like a kind of resonance about him very immediately that 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 we knew each other. And I, and what's funny is I look back now and I think we were kind of the odd couple, you know, we're kind of a very different kind of pairing of individuals, you know. Uh, but, um, within a short period of time, he started talking about mimic and would I come work with him? And then I said, sure. And then, then it, that was the beginning of that, um, page turn. Yeah. And it's, it's quite an experience, isn't it? Because, uh, I think I've heard you talk about how before, how, uh, Guillermo went through a few different kind of iterations, so to speak of mimic on the, the first kind of the way that story evolved it was something very very different i believe um in the early stages and then it evolved uh, into what it ended up being and um, there was that a process that you were did you come on more to the latter part of that process or were you having conversations with guillermo when it kind of morphed from one thing to the other yeah it started out as a, a part of an anthology so there was um, like, I think four or five directors involved in a project that uh, Miramax uh, was calling uh, Light Years. That was the working title of the Umbrella Project. And um, I think Brian Singer was involved, um, uh, Guillermo. Uh, the, I mean, I'd have to go back through my notes, but there was like five directors that were sort of you know, really on a fast track, uh, people that were, you know, paying attention were saying like these directors are doing something. And so the first draft of Mimic that I read uh, was a 30 page short. It was really going to be like um, one fifth or one quarter of this larger picture. Um, 
And as such, it was really like an irony piece, you know, like uh, it was a short, like a, it had vibe, sort of like a, you know, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes or a lot of um, Night Gallery or, you know, um, Outer Limits or irony pieces where, you know, like the, the, in the, in the, you know, like I'm a, I, I'm a, there's that famous, um, twilight zone with burgess meredith where he's like a librarian and he finally gets all the books and all the time and then he breaks his glasses and then you're like oh shoot you know like so like that's an irony you know kind of piece and i don't remember exactly but it had a similar thing it was sort of like you go through this adventure and then at the end you realize that oh everyone's a mimic you know, like every everybody that you just survived, they're all around you, and that was kind of like the bum 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 bum, you know, ending. Uh, so it was it was really um, uh, going to be done on the low on a low budget. You know, we were going to shoot in Mexico City. We were gonna. Um, it was going to be done with puppets. You know, there was a lot of. Um, it was mostly hiding the mimic, so you were really going to not get much of a look at it. It was more like. Uh, you know, it was really going to take advantage of all of Del Toro's knowledge, you know, from being an effects guy and, you know, working with practicals and stuff. And um, so I came onto that. And actually, I had only I had I had taken a leave of absence from ILM with the intentions of coming back. I had uh, talked to the management and said, could I leave for six months? And they're like, yeah. So I still had a phone and every I left my office completely intact. Um <clears throat> And we then started to work on the design of the mimic, and I hired a, a sculptor who started making some maquettes. And there was a meeting that Del Toro uh, had with uh, with um, one of the Weinstein's. I, I think it might have been Harvey, but I, I can't remember which. But he had had a meeting and shared like his storyboard and the concept art that I'd been doing in this maquette. And they got very enthusiastic about it. And they were like, ah, you know, we got to make this a feature film. We got to, this is a feature film. You know, this is too good. Like we don't want to waste it on this short, you know? And I know that Del Toro had reservations about it um, because, you know, being um, uh, a Mexican uh, director and uh, this had a, having like a big insect, which was basically like a giant cockroach, you know, like he didn't want to do La Cucaracha, you know, he didn't want to have that association. And I think if I, I mean, I know, but, you know, some of this is, I guess, I, you know, it's very personal, but I think that he actually even turned Mimic down as a feature. I think he said, no, you know, like it's a good short, you know, I want to do the short. I don't want to do the feature. Uh, but then I remember one morning I was already, we were already working on the short. Um, and we were staying in a hotel in Los Angeles. Um, and he called me and said, meet me, meet me downstairs for breakfast. Like we'll take my car. And I was like, okay, you know, and then I, you know, get ready and like would run down there. And, um, I got in the car and he was, Del Toro was really enthusiastic. And I remember he like slapped my leg or he like slapped my chest and he said, I know how to make it a feature. <laughs> so like the day before it was like, I'm not going to make it as a feature. And I, cause I remember thinking, well, it'd be fun if it was a feature. Cause I would give work on it more, you know, but then he was like, no. And I just kind of like put it out of my mind. So then all of a sudden it was like, I know how to make it a feature. And what he had, what he'd come up with was the scene that's actually in Mimic 
where somebody who uh, it's actually Norman Reedus, the 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 the, uh, the actor from um, uh, all of his other movies. Um, <laughs> The uh, the guy who's in the video game with Del Toro in it, um, I'm drawing a complete blank because I'm trying to switch genres. At any rate, um, d- there's a scene where some um, uh, somebody who works for a water treatment facility or for the sewage facility of the of the city finds what they believe to be a young boy floating. And when they get up close, it's not a boy at all. It's this giant insect. And it's actually a youth. It's actually like we used to call it the dead boy. But it, it was a juvenile. And that idea made him, had, gave him a mechanism to expand the narrative so that you could have this discovery component that would drive the story forward to introduce the characters more fully and then to introduce a second and third act. Whereas when it was a short, it, it didn't have any extra pieces. It was just a, it was just a, a direct line. Death Stranding is the game I'm thinking of. Um, and the, uh, 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 it doesn't matter at this point, but at any rate, the, uh, the, the bottom line was, yeah. It, and then the mimic changed, you know, cause the mimic inig- initially was fully formed, um, and then because of the changes in the narrative, we had to do like, a, you know, a, a nymph version. We had to do the dead boy version. We had to do then the, the mimic version. And then there was actually this thing that we referred to as the God roach, which was this Uber, um, version of the mimic. Um, those eventually were combined together, um, <clears throat> uh, but yeah. And, and then it, the script changed a lot. Um, I actually, you know, I mean, it gets a little bit into the spectrum of, uh, it gets a little into the speculation, but I think that the draft that Matthew and Guillermo originally pitched was, uh, was a really fantastic, uh, script. And I think a lot of how he envisioned the picture, um, in its earliest, uh, incarnations was, were really scary. And I think if the student, if the studio had, you know, provided him more um, freedom and more uh, latitude, that mimic would have easily, um, it, it could have really been um, a, a, a serious a classic um, creature film. It, it really is half a movie, you know, like it, it's a movie that, you know, that I see Del Toro in every frame and then he's, he disappears. You know, and then there's some other movie and then he comes back and then he disappears again. And I know that it was uh, really being micromanaged uh, by the studio. Which, yeah, happens, uh, unfortunately, not a lot, but maybe more so, I guess, for directors who are starting out, especially doing coming from their native language film and doing their first kind of feature in that realm that studios do sometimes like to have, don't they, a bit more of a creative control. But obviously we're very fortunate that his career just kept on going and we got to see so much more real Guillermo on screen with Pan's Labyrinth and the Hellboy films that you worked on and uh, one of my favourite actions of recent years, Pacific Rim. Was it, were you always kind of in close contact with him, I suppose, because these projects sometimes not so much overlapped, but they were very much back to back to a certain extent. Was 
was Pacific Rim maybe something a bit more different because it was more into like robot structures and these big kind of beings that uh, were, you know, away from, they were kind of hand in hand with creature effects at that time. You know, he had both ends of the spectrum, so to speak. I always felt that um, Pacific Rim was like uh, the pin. Now, I, I don't want to say the pinnacle because if you say pinnacle, it means like that's as high as it goes. I mean, but at that time, I remember feeling like it was a high bar, like he set a really high bar. And m- from my view, the bar was set um, about specific narrative um concerns so so even though it is a del toro film and it has all of his you know whimsy and amazing interesting stuff um from my initial uh, view of the project it it seemed um it seemed more uh self-contained in a sense like it was like a kind of a new genre i mean i didn't associate my like I was surprised that he was going to do giant robots, you know, like I, it didn't feel like something that was an extension per se of who I knew him to be as an artist. Um, and same with, um, just the scope of it was something that I didn't, you know, it, it, it had more of a science fiction sort of, I mean, he did make it a fantasy film, but there was a lot of science fiction kind of hard, you know, science stuff, which I also, um, didn't necessarily in the beginning associate with him, but he was able to bend and um, reframe, reformat a lot of those um, uh, narrative um, kind of, uh, not so much tropes, but themes and, and really made him his own. Um, and so I, I, I really, I think as time went on, um, understood it more and more as, as being a co- kind of a logical part of his canon. It just in the beginning, I, I think I, I felt as though it was surprising, you know, to me that that was what he was um, going to be focusing on. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I'd already finished the, um, <clears throat> the work that I had done uh, with Jim on Avatar. And I think what I was a little bit surprised with with Pacific Rim was that Guillermo really was looking for me to um, assist in much more technical problem solving than historically I had done. I mean, he used to joke like when Mike Mignola and I used to share an office together, both on Blade 2 and then again on like Cowboy, he would ask Mike to draw something like, Mike, draw this you know, this thing. And then he would look at it and he would say, Oh, you know, I like this. Um, let's give it to Ty and see if he can make it look like it's, it will work. You know, like it was sort of like, you know, Ty can make it look real. Um, which I think was funny. I always found it funny, but it could be frustrating for Mike, I'm sure, but he was always a really good sport about it. Uh, so I guess I already had kind of, um, you know, being the, the guy who can make something look like it works, sort of a dude, um, you know, like uh, Hellboy's gun, you know, I think when Mike drew the, you know, what became the, 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 the Samaritan, right? Like Mike would draw like a pipe. He always told me like, when I draw Hellboy's gun, it's a pipe, uh, you know? And so then, you know, when Guillermo's like, well, draw Hellboy's gun and it looks like a pipe, then he goes, well, maybe Ty can make it look more like a gun and less like a pipe, you know? Um, so 
I think when I came onto Pacific Rim, I was like, oh, wow, I'll get to design some robots. That'll be cool, you know? But actually, most of his list of things was the inside of the Jaeger's heads, you know, the human robot interface, all that mechanic that goes on with the feet, how the feet connect, you know, how those all those actuators in the, you know, between the actor and the floor, all that stuff, how that works, you know, how the screens work, what the interior space looks like. I mean, it was, it was way more like uh, the science end of the spectrum. Um, and then of course, those things uh, had to be constructed. And because of the work I had done with Jim on the vehicles for Avatar, um, that was right in my wheelhouse. Like I knew how to think about the scale and I knew how to make proposals about, you know, this is maybe a way the door could work and this is maybe how the hatch could work and this might be like how these actuators could work. <clears throat> so it, it made sense, uh, but there was a part of me that was watching, you know, some of the other designers work on like the robot designs, you know, like the exteriors. Uh, and I remember thinking like, oh, that would be fun, you know, but I was busy, you know, tasked with these, you know, like the specimen tanks I designed and like the the big, you know, um, there's this big um, control center, you know, like computer console with these big circular screens, you know, like I, I had to do because they were all built. You know, most of the things I spent my time on were actually constructed. Um, so. Yeah, it was different. Well, that kind of process ended up being a big part of your career, especially when you talk about your time working with Jim and working on Avatar. Now, like, especially Avatar's a, a project which is kind of really interesting because a lot of people have said, and it's widely known, that Avatar's production was way before you know the actual film we get to see eventually in 2008, 2009. So with the initial, was that kind of your original conversations with jim that's the because you did create a huge number of the vehicles that were and making them something that appeared otherworldly to a certain extent but also had a lot of realism to them and functionality to them and was something that obviously the army used but on a different world so were those your conversations with Jim from the get-go is that's kind of where he wanted you to come in and wanted you to get involved in an avatar sense. I, I think that by that time, like, so I met Jim, you know, way back at, at, at when I was at ILM because we actually met when he was working on Terminator 2. And then I actually worked with him on a, um, on a television commercial. And so I had, uh, you know, I had worked one-on-one -on -one with him, so we knew each other. And then, and then I had bumped into him periodically um, through the years. And he and Del Toro are good friends. So, you know, I knew that Jim, you know, like Guillermo would mention, Jim's doing this thing. And, you know, like, so I, I was kind of in the, the mix, you know. Uh, but when Avatar got started and I came on board in um, 2006, the the his focus was pandora and the creatures like that was what was up and running and there there really was nothing um that was uh, nothing was happening with the vehicles and i think it's probably because you know like having done aliens and you know that whole aesthetic um was probably something that he could 
he knew that he had a handle on, whereas the I think the the creatures in Pandora was, you know, was really more amorphous. And even though he had the themes, you know, the finessing of those things was probably more um, concerning uh, to to you know to getting that movie made. So when I was uh, asked to come on board, um, I. I arrived and right away, I think my first day, I had just had a one-on-one with uh, Jim and I think John Landau was there, the producer. And he basically, in a short 90-minute meeting, um, just walked me through and explained to me pretty much everything that you see on screen. I mean, it was, you know, like this is a small one-man attack vehicle. That's a Scorpion. You know, it has to be visually smaller than the Samson. We don't want audiences to confuse the two. It's got a lot, it's very fast. It's got a lot of weapons. But when I say fast, I don't mean like supersonic fast. I mean fast for a Bell helicopter fast because we're going to be under the tree canopies and you're going to want to see the relationship because if they go too fast, that's going to blow the scale of the trees. So, you know, they're, they're, that's, and then the rotors, there's going to be twin rotors and then this thing... And so like, then he would go on to the next one and he would say, this has got to carry a minimum of six and there's got to be room in the back for the Navi and there's going to have to be at least four Navi in there and there's going to be a big side gun. And, you know, and it was really the, the but the, then when we got into like this, the, uh, the dragon, which is the really big, um, he said, the dragon is a fantasy vehicle. Like it's, it's uh, like, I'm thinking about the big, you know, bombers, you know, the big B-52s and stuff like that. There's turrets, there's, you know, lots of, it's, it's a difficult vehicle to get around inside of. It's like an obstacle course inside. If you don't know it, you could run into things, you know, like, so it became more metaphor uh, as he went through the list. And then the amp suit, of course, was, you know, the amp suit, I always joke, because the well, only thing he told me for sure about the amp suit was that it was uh, 13 feet tall. Like it's humanoid, you know, it's two arms, it's got hands, it's 13 feet tall. And I remember asking him like, why 13 feet? You know, <laughs> cause it seems so random, you know, like I know nothing about this vehicle, but it's 13 feet tall. Um, it was because that he'd already figured out the uh, height differentials between the humans and the Navi. And then the Navi to the amp suit is the same height differential. So you end up getting this, um, you know, this escalation of, uh, of power through the movie. Um, and then there were like, you know, the road grader, the big, you know, the big, uh, remote road grader, and then some of the mining, you know, mining stuff, but pretty much, you know, that was the order, the list. And, um, I just started in earnest, you know, chipping away at it. Um, and then we would meet and then I would show him the progress and then he would respond and then we would do another round. And the only thing I would say is because of the scope of the film, um, I was given actually in my career, it was both the most demanding, uh, show from a technical standpoint that I worked on, but it also had the most, um, like appropriate, uh, calendar, like, like we really worked on things for a long period of time. Like we came to, we arrived at, uh, uh, we arrived at like weeks of thinking, like week, weeks. And that's why, I think that's why the, the vehicles um, hold together. Like they, they, are the, they are the element in the film that grounds us to the human world. 
um, like they are the bridge between the world of Hell's Gate, the world of the humans, and the jungle. And I think that it was the amount of time that we had to think each thing through and to make really, really refined adjustments that make them feel um, believable. And at the same time, fantastic. You know, they, it's a very nice balance. But I know even with the M suit, like we were making adjustments, you know, that were that you wouldn't have arrived to, you wouldn't have arrived at with, by just having, you know, freedom to just explore. You really needed to have, well, like I remember, like the canopy of the M suit needed to rise. And we found out that when it rose the way that Jim had envisioned, like a like the canopy on a fighter jet because the actor was going to access the cockpit from the side, there wasn't any space for them to crawl in. They would have had to crawl in basically from the front. So then it was like, well, that won't work. So what are we going to do? Well, what if we had it rise first open like a jet fighter, like a clamshell, but then rise up. And so then we had to figure out like how that mechanism would work. So I spent, you know, like I'd spend like several days, a week perhaps, like figuring how that mechanism worked. And I show it to him and he would go, yeah, 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 that would probably work. And then what would happen then is that then as a result of that change, that canopy when it rose up would bump into a piece of the arm. So then you'd have to say, oh, shit, now it's bumping into this arm piece. So then what do we do to modify the arm piece to allow for this other thing to operate appropriately? And so then we would go in and adjust that. And then those results would create uh, silhouettes or... Um, would create form language that felt custom built to the machine itself, felt authentic to the machine and that the machine functioned and everything seemed to work in symphony. Uh, but at the same time, you wouldn't have just come up with it. You know, you needed to know it that intimately. Um, and so that's why it was almost, well, three years. I think I worked two and a half years on the vehicle. <laughs> The longest show I ever worked on. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that for me, it was, again, like it was like a little bit like Jurassic. It was so high altitude and so profound, you know, like what we were up to that you were just like, I mean, I saw the very first tests that were done. You can find them in some of the making of. Um, and I was really like thinking, wow, this is this is hard. Like this is going to be so hard um, to, I kind of knew the vehicles would, would work because there've been so many spacecraft done, you know, compositing digital hard surface models was not, it wasn't going to be that difficult, you know, but getting organic biological performance, you know, with the Navi and stuff, it, it just felt like really hard. Like I just remember just thinking that, this is really going to be hard. <laughs> I thought, I think a lot of people thought that, especially in the early days when, uh, as people have said that Jim was talking about things that hadn't even been invented yet. Yeah. You know, when he first was talking about the ideas and you, you seem to make it a trait within your career to pick projects that aren't, that aren't always either the easiest or have some things that are in a creative mind, but not yet a practical way of doing them or creating them but it's something that's figured out along the way but you've I mean you've had such a career in so many 
interesting and forward-thinking films when it comes to cinema. I think kind of like wrapping up now that you're a professor and you're you're teaching, you know, the new crop of minds that are coming into these industries and exploring these elements. I mean, what do you find yourself saying more commonly to communicate to them when advising them on a career in film? Is there something that you kind of go to as like a either a piece of advice or just something that you like to tell them when they're thinking about that yeah that's something that I really want to do and passionate about exploring so I would say that the the there is a lot of trepidation with um students today because all it takes is 15 minutes of googling and you can see the depth of quality work that relates to almost any topic I mean you can pretty much take you know, uh, you can Google robot skeleton concept art and you're going to get like tons of examples of, you know, robot skeletons or, you know, robots that look like skeletons or the, the Terminator or whatever. And, and it feels uh, very daunting, I think, at times um, to, to think, well, wow, how am I going to compete? And I actually often will use music analogies um, because I'll say, you know, uh, the history of music uh, is, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's much older than movies. I mean, they've been, you know, music has been written and written down for far, far longer than, than before Edison invented the movie camera. Um, so there's still new themes. There's still new, uh, melodies. There's still new methods. There's still new approaches. There's, and the, and the visual universe is the same way and your unique self, um, combined with, uh, quality skills, uh, is going to be a value if you choose to, um, make that your focus, um, your originality. I believe that every person has, uh, some measure of authentic, original, uh, potentiality inside them. And, and maybe it manifests first as a young child. And in, in many cases, it's just ignored or, or it doesn't have a voice. It doesn't have a way out. And then it just dissipates. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's how, uh, that that's how the human story looks to me. Like that's how it works. So if you manage to maintain um, connections to your authentic, unique abilities, and then if you can amplify those, uh, you have a good chance of um, of uh, arriving at a position, arriving at a, a certain like self construct, arriving at you know developing a, a, a presence, a self that that will have value to um, larger projects, or that'll allow you to create your own projects. Um, I think, like I also will look at narrative storytelling is always going to be fresh. There's there's always new ideas to be had in the universe. I mean, that's the nature of reality. So I try to safeguard against uh, students getting too frustrated. I have a little uh, exercise that I go through with most, most classes, which really divides the learning experience into four kind of categories. Um, one is skill acquisition we talked about earlier. So always be developing better skills. Sort of like, and, I, and I, I'm a big fan of prints, of course, as uh, and, and I think that Prince always was improving. At least that's the, that seems to be the, um, the vibe. That, that's the kind of transmission he had is that, you know, one, one week he would be doing blues songs, the next week he would be doing, you know, some funk songs. And he seemed to be always honing his craft. 
Um, and I think that that's what Jim does. I think, you know, always being uh, somebody who's acquiring new skills is a very smart thing to focus on. So skill acquisition is, is huge. Uh, the next one I ask students to focus on is what we talked a little bit about too, is interior methods. Um, like how does, how does your interior universe function? Like, do you do your best work in the morning? Do you do your best work in the evening? Like look for any signals or signs that can, uh, you know, provide you a map to better, um, outcomes. So becoming a student of yourself, uh, interior methodologies. And then there's the uh, amplification of confidence, which is the ability to act even in tough circumstances and, and put yourself out there and do the networking and all those things that are required. And last is incubation of um, opportunity, which is to always <clears throat> keep a certain amount of attention focused on where's the next thing going to happen. Like, how can I align myself with some new opportunity that's yet to manifest? And if you do those four things, um, you've got a good shot at it. And so that's, those are the four, I call it the buoyant tool set. It's just a way to talk about all four of them together. So the buoyant tool set is a, it's a, it's a collection of ideas that travels with you no matter how turbulent the ocean gets. It still floats there and you can just go, oh, these are the things I'll always need with me. And they kind of transcend technology. They're not, they're not things that require a specific tool and those kinds of deals. Well, a perfect, uh, perfect set of tools there, I think, that many people could take uh, with them and definitely put into practice. And that's, I think, a perfect way to end it there, Ty. I really thank you and appreciate uh, your time here today. It's been just thoroughly interesting to talk to you. And I know I could probably ask you questions for a lot longer time, but I'll let you get on with your day. But thank you so much for, for taking your time out today to be a part of this. It's my pleasure, and I, I, I actually really enjoy this kind of dialogue that's a little more, um, you know, free-flowing. If you, if you ever have an interest to continue the conversation, you can count me in, but uh, it's been a pleasure, and I hope that uh, your listeners um, uh, enjoy it as, as uh, one, one-tenth as much as I've enjoyed speaking with you this morning. Hi guys, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to another episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Please don't forget to like, comment and subscribe and may the force be with you. Uh, uh.